Hello, I'm Justin Smith, and you're listening to What is AI? Today, we're going to be having a conversation with Tristan Markwell. He's a data scientist and principal at Providence Health. Tristan provides an overview of artificial intelligence from a data scientist's perspective. Also, we discuss how AI will shape the cost of making predictions and how the impacts of automation will change the routine tasks that we do as human beings. We also discuss the potential for disappointment with all of the hype surrounding artificial intelligence. Welcome to What is AI? Thank you very much for tuning in, everybody. Uh, this is What's AI with Tristan Markwell. I'm Justin Smith, and uh, we'll go ahead and start with a uh, quick background of yourself there, Tristan, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So I went to the University of Nebraska, and undergraduate, I did a lot of things. I did math and statistics, political science, and economics. And then for graduate school, I did economics with a focus on econometrics and, and macro theory. So I did a lot of um, statistical theory, uh, mathematical statistics, as well as uh, time series modeling, different things like that. And out of college, my first job was at National Research Corporation doing uh, healthcare patient satisfaction surveys. So that was my foot into the industry. And I've been working in, in healthcare ever since. Uh, 10 years ago, I moved over to Portland, Oregon, and I moved to Providence Health and Services, which is now uh, part of the larger Providence St. Joseph Health. So over those 10 years, I've gone from being um, like a data and reporting analyst on the Oregon Regional Medical Group to helping with the first uh, our big EPIC implementation where we implemented a, an electronic health record across our entire system of, of 35 hospitals uh, in what was uh, a very grueling project. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, moving from, from there, once things settled down there, starting the data science team on the central data team at Providence, which was a ton of fun. And after about three years of that, I just shifted over to a data strategy role. So now I'm the, the title is principal strategic scientist, but I, I run the, the data strategy pillar under our healthcare intelligence division. And, and uh, I am the data strategy pillar. I don't, uh, I'm a principal, so I don't have like a team or anything like that. And so basically it's kind of a made up job that where I get to do all the fun stuff that um, people, leaders have asked me to do for a long time, but has never been in a job description. Like, can you maintain relationships with universities so we can develop a talent pipeline? Yes. Can you evaluate vendors to see like which ones are hype and which one actually understand the the landscape and what we're dealing with in healthcare? Can you uh, help us know which of these um, possible programs is most likely to generate ROI? So it's been kind of a crazy journey, uh, and uh, I keep finding new and exciting things to do. And and one of the the things that that my uh, other colleagues in in data science now they um like to say or I like to say about the data science work and it's true as my work as well is like you have to be willing to be bad at something new all the time <laughs> yes <laughs> and take those risks right i mean that's absolutely that's the other part of it too well I, thank you very much that's a that's a fantastic background i think this will be a very interesting conversation um specifically around kind of where you see artificial intelligence in its current state and also where you see the field going so how how do you describe ai to somebody who's not in this type of role or this type of field yeah the first thing that you have to do is really make a decision i think and that is uh when 
you use the term artificial intelligence, yeah, right? Like the term in itself is talking about uh, how we have machines uh, do things that we've assumed only humans can do that that are truly intelligent tasks. And so, to some extent, there, right, from like a reductionist standpoint, there is no such thing as artificial intelligence because once a machine improves itself capable of doing something, then people are like, oh, that's actually not that complicated because you can set up a set of rules or statistical model or some kind of a process that generates that behavior. So that's like not a very fulfilling answer because we want <laughs> to, like terms should have meaning. Yeah. Um, so I think that the problem, the, the, real, the real choice that you face then is between defining AI in, in terms of either... Um, like a strong general AI that can like think like a human in a wide variety of situations. And so, for example, in, in a medical context, that would be a, a something that can um, look at a patient and say, like, this is what I'm really concerned about in the same way that a doctor would. These are the tests I'd want to run. These are the diagnoses that I suspect and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think, though, that um, the other thing that you can do is just take the like the wave of hype that's around AI and you can choose to uh, try to take that momentum in a more maybe productive direction a more realistic direction and say like, sure, we'll just use AI to mean the, the application of, of machine learning algorithms to, to tasks where we're currently having people do uh, work that, that we know is that only humans can do right now, but we know is not operating at the top of their license. So how can we augment the work that's going on or scale work that's happening by using um, algorithms that are, have been learned from data to inform the processes? Yeah, I think that that's that's a fine way to go. I think that 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 really helps you be part of the conversation, not just be like a stick in the mud about AI, and then also help move projects forward. No, I, I agree. So so do you describe it sometimes individuals? I've heard people talk about flipping AI to IA to intelligent assistant. So I think that the most, um, so I, I mean, there's no reason that we couldn't have AI take tasks over. But mm -hmm. I think that that's not always helpful. So for one of the examples in, in healthcare, one of the most obvious wastes of human time is in chart abstraction where you know there's a structured um database essentially saying okay this patient uh is in this is in this cancer study and we need to know everything all these details about their tumor uh as just an example so in that situation you need to take data that is in a messy environment in mm -hmm. the chart, which could be in structured data or in text notes, any of those kinds of places, and be able to turn it into the structured the structured um, format. Yeah. And there's it's not there's nothing there that um, machines that have learned enough couldn't do. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily the best way to think about the problem because that's a big problem. What's a smaller problem is to say, well, what could we do to make the people who are doing abstracting right now 20% more efficient? Yes. Right. How can we move from like, well, and, and that because the thing about that is you can build individual pieces and those pieces have value, right? So you can say, what if we said, these seem to be the notes that have the most relevant content to the question that you're asking. 
then we can move to th- something where we're saying this is this is the part of the note, um, and this is what we think the answer is. Do you th- do you agree with this? Yeah. And then we can move to saying like we're just gonna like default fill in all the forms and and provide evidence, and you can override where you want, and then just and then and then at the end you might fully automate that. So I think that like the this dichotomy of intelligent assistance versus artificial intelligence it really exists on um it's obvious in some ways that it exists on a continuum in terms of where the technology is but then also i think it exists on a continuum in a practical sense in terms of in a given project that's probably the best way to go is to say what little parts are there what's the the part that makes the least sense for a human to be doing and can we automate that yeah Absolutely. The the automation part is kind of what I was going to kind of drive us to next. But I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're kind of describing it in a stepwise fashion where take what we can do well with machine learning now, um, build those algorithms that can help, you know, essentially automate portions of the human task, but then also keep the human in the loop. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that and to the extent that you're having success, it might make sense to try the next step. And at some point, what does, I mean, human in the loop can mean multiple things, right? At some point you keep abstracting further away, right? Like there's a human that is monitoring the process at a higher level to make sure that things aren't breaking and that like the distributions of values are correct. And then we're, then we automate that step and we, and we, you know, move the human in the loop further back. Right. So I think that, that that's, that there is always, a human somewhere but what we think of as like this is a necessary part of of a human being in the loop is going to that 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 space of where the loop is we're going to keep getting a wider appreciation of that yes it turn well I, I think about it as turning kind of more more over to the <laughs> more over to the ai as you trust it more uh that's kind of my my experience a little bit from what i've d- dabbled with which has been there's been trusting it more but also like that experience of working with it is how it learns what you expect. And Correct. That, like, so it's not like, it's not just the, the trust isn't, and I'm sure this is, this is how you're, you're meaning it. Right. It's like the trust isn't like the AI was always there and, and we're like, we're the ones that are changing. Like we're like basically developing a relationship. Yeah. We get better together. I think is the way I kind of, I think Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing. So uh, yeah, it's so fascinating. So w- what what really gets you kind of excited about this kind of current state of where we are with machine learning and building these kind of more uh, complex artificial intelligence type systems? What what excites you in that space? I think what excites me most is the the way that we move um expectations and to some extent it's frustrating that you know in healthcare and probably in other industries there are vendors who are um moving those expectations too fast right and they're that they're 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 kind of spoiling the ending for us yeah um but i remember when we started doing reporting and analytics and this was 10 years ago and even five years ago we'd hear the same thing people were like oh that data is in a text field you can't do anything with it Right. And that idea that there are things that are just, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's impossible. You cannot extract value from it. Yeah. And, and then just like that ability to say things that weren't possible are possible now. I think one of the things that's even a further extension of that 
uh, I read an article about the the modern like what's interesting about this era is that you're essentially making prediction cheap very very cheap and then that means that you can think of new kinds of problems as prediction problems right so saying like a self-driving car is actually you can think of it as a prediction problem if prediction is cheap enough is like fascinating right if it's yeah. fast enough but then like you can also take things that where uh and the article is saying like things like amazon instead of waiting to um the way they are now they're they're waiting until you order something but if they could predict well enough if they had enough data and predictive power to know what you would probably want to buy anyway they could just send it to you and say feel free to send this back if you don't actually want it but we thought you might yeah and like that's like they changed a business model fundamentally just because prediction was cheap and so how does medicine change right and there's a whole the challenge with healthcare is that there's this huge regulatory apparatus but can you imagine if we were just like hey um, we just sent this drug to your house. We think you should start taking it. It might like, and then in six months, uh, we'll check on you. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> we'll send the Uber like, and come pick you up. <laughs> yeah. So like, but that idea of, of being able to, um, fundamentally think of problems in different ways because of new capability and being able to open people's eyes in that way. That's what I think is most fun and most exciting is, being able to kind of spin some of that magic and yeah and it, there, there's a difficult line to walk right between being uh an enthusiastic advocate and being like a huckster and so that's that's one where you know i can always I like all those vendors but i have to make sure that i'm not i'm not you know being uh unethical or over promising or anything like that in in what i do yeah kind of got to tamper it back a little bit so say look this is where we think it's going this is what they're showing and demoing us but this is what i think the realistic expectations are yeah and this is what's realistic for us to accomplish in six months correct correct which is sometimes very different than what a vendor expects you can accomplish in six months yeah but then you spend six months trying to get the data to them and getting your interfaces figured out yeah (laughs) yeah i think that's (laughs) it's a very common curmudgeoning problem that we many of us have had that are working in the industry where oh we'll just take the data and do some it's like oh well, that takes a little longer than everybody anticipates. Uh, yep. uh, so, yeah, again, this is this is really interesting. One of the things that I try and think about, but not in a totally negative way, but just more of the idea of, you know, I, I jokingly say what keeps me up at night is the unknown unknowns. But with the with the realm of AI and sort of again, you know, machine learning is getting better and better. It's it's easier to use, I would say, for the for individuals that don't have, um, you know, extremely uh, prolific programming backgrounds like say in R or Python but what what scares you with artificial intelligence what are the things that you think we should be worried about or at least put on the radar to kind of have on the concern list I think there's been a lot of work in the last year about uh, algorithmic bias and DJ Patil and others have have put out a lot of good material to help make sure that we're thinking about that yeah and that and it's interesting because the consequences of that bias very based on your use case and so there's like a lot of ethical discernment that has to happen i think that the thing that most worries me is that we will be so disappointed in the bursting of the hype bubble that we won't be able to correctly discern or fund the right 
improvements that will make meaningful, uh, like that will advance, move the dial on the things we really care about. Yeah. I think there's just like the things are moving so fast and the, the technology base is changing so quickly and the, the expectations are changing so fast that at some point without like standards and to some extent, even a, like a slowdown in certain kinds of innovation, mm-hmm. the whole thing might just collapse. Just implode on itself. I mean, sometimes yeah. I worry, like, you know, I'll just like be like, am I, is this stuff for real? Or am I just making all this up? Right. Are we just like, are we just like collectively like faking out an entire generation about what we're doing here? And, and usually I'm like, okay, okay, this is fine. This is fine. There's real <laughs> math here and yeah. everything's fine. But, but, but yeah, sometimes you, I think the biggest danger is overextension. Yeah, overextension. I, well, I, I, for me, it's the idea of moving too fast, right? And kind of talking to some individuals that were involved you know, many, many years ago, and they talk about kind of the AI winter that, that happened where, you know, I think it was the late 50s or 40s, and they thought that they'd be able to do some phenomenal stuff, but the computing power wasn't there. And, you know, now today we've got you know, the idea with the cloud, cloud computing, and size of data sets is exploding um, and we can do things with those data sets, whereas before it would have taken, you know, days or weeks where you can run, you know, spin up your clusters and run the analysis in three minutes if you're willing to pay for it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that idea is really important of making sure we're, we're thinking ethically, we're, you know, not purposely building biases into the algorithms and also just kind of taking a step back to say, what's the larger purpose? Cause I know in business, sometimes you just really want to make sure you deliver and you get pushed for timelines and, that's, I think, where, you know, having individuals that are in a role like yours as a principal is extremely valuable in the sense where you can really step back and say, hang on, what's the larger picture we're supposed to be seeing here and how does this fit in? That's what I found is really one of the the biggest blessings of being a principal is everybody else who has teams to manage is just swamped and in the weeds all the time. And, and it gives me the freedom to remind them and this is you know our our interim chief data officer and others just like these are the larger goals that we should be moving towards like i know that this is the next thing on the sprint timeline but like this is why we have a search engine in the first place or whatever it is right like this is this is the use case we should really care about and that's been it's been great to be able to spend so much of my time thinking at that level yeah, it sounds incredible. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm not gonna lie; I'm a little bit envious of that. That seems like a pretty incredible role to have. So, do you know of any other individuals at other other healthcare companies that have a role like that? I think that many of them are. There are people like that probably that are mostly uh, consultants, is my guess. Okay. But like, this is part of the this is part of the thing that worries me sometimes. Right? Is is it's kind of a a golden handcuff situation where I'm like, gosh, is there, do I have any other opportunity? Like I, this, this is like making up my own, creating my own job essentially. And just like doing what I think is fun all the time. Uh, having found a company that is, is happy to pay me to do that. Um, I, there, that's like the next fear is like, is there, are there any others? Like what, what is, what's something bad happens? And so that, um, most days I don't worry too much about that, but it does um, it does creep up because I don't know anyone who has a similar a similar role. 
Yeah. I, it sounds to me like you're on the forefront. I mean, really, the more the more kind of I, I listen and talk to the individuals in the data science world, you know, there there's kind of this bifurcation or split from the business, the soft, they call them quote unquote soft side skills, where you can understand the data science, machine learning, supervised and supervised learning, all that kind of stuff, but then also have the, the acumen to talk with the business because you understand the business. And that's kind of a different role right now than, you know, the hardcore data scientists who work on the Jupyter Notebooks and doing the programming in R and Python and building the models. Um, right. And so I, I'm, I'm curious to see in the next, you know, 12 to 15, 18 months, if there's not more more places or companies that have a role like yours that says, okay, we're, we're really trying to push the boundaries and push ourselves to the forefront. We want to have somebody who's also doing the forward thinking that's not involved in kind of more of the day-to-day, you know, managerial operations, but can really step outside, as you said, those sprints to just make sure we are, we are going towards that larger goal, which is extremely important. So, uh, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. The other thing is that that's interesting. That's like kind of almost a, um, a limitation, like, or maybe a negative feedback loop on, on a role like mine is I am, um, I would say like the most senior person or like the person with the most say in like leadership direction that knows our data or like the details of implementation all the way down to the bottom. Yeah. Right. And so like, could I have a larger scope and still like understand how that algorithm is implemented or how this, how the, how our EHR data model is put together and, and what some of the issues are that we have with test patients or whatever. And I'm not, I'm not sure that there's, I think there's like a lot of um, natural limitations on that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I had a great moment with my uh, PhD advisor in neuroscience where we were at the giant Society for Neuroscience conference and there's, you know, 30 or 40,000 people that show up and it's literally four and a half days of just, you know, morning and afternoon poster sessions. And there's, I don't know, literally tens of thousands of posters up. It was like my second year there and we're coming down the escalator. I had this like overwhelming feeling of, oh, and I turned to him, I said, I'll never know it all. And he, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He goes, don't worry. I had that moment when I was a grad student where I was crying in my hotel room and thought I'll never know all of this. And so luckily my, my moment didn't involve tears, but it was that kind of, as you recognize, it, there is a limit to what we can understand and figure out as an individual human, even when you do have this giant wide breadth of knowledge that also runs very, very deep. And I think that's from my perspective, one of the big moments of realization of like, oh, okay, I don't know what I don't know. Let me go and figure out what I need to know in that area so that I can become proficient at it. Kind of the idea, you, you know, at the beginning we were talking about, you have to be comfortable learning new things all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, just to pivot a little bit. So I think the systems kind of like Alexa or, you know, Microsoft's Cortana or the other, um, you know, voice recognition type of systems that are out there. Um those inherently mostly because I understand sort of how the backends behind those systems work, you know, sometimes keep me up at night because they're so, so fascinating. But what's one of the things or, or maybe some examples that are, has been the most surprising to you that you've seen um, either you've seen or even you've been able to build with AI um, in, in the recent past or that you kind of are thinking about right now or a product that you've used and you're just kind of, you know, your mind's blown. Yeah. I don't think anything that, that we've built or that, probably most people built in healthcare is, is, is mind blowing <laughs> people who are doing this kind of work. But I'll tell you the thing that's, that surprised me most um, in the last couple of years is Google duplex at like the level at which it performed uh, at, at a specific task for sure. But being able to have a conversation in a way that was 
convincing to people on the phone. Yeah. Can you describe was, Duplex for individuals that don't? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Duplex uh, came out at, at Google's annual conference, yeah. and they just, they're just like, oh, hey, check this out. And By the way. Like, this, yeah, this person that was having a conversation with uh, a hair salon about yeah. setting up an appointment, and then they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is a robot that we made. And jaws right? and dropped. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it was incredible. And then, like, there was, like, this immediate backlash of, like, oh, no, we're talking to robots, all this kind of stuff, without understanding, like, how much, like, that this was not just a, a value proposition for the individuals to be like, phone, make me an appointment. I don't want to talk to anybody. Uh, but also for businesses to be able to have information like like today because of Labor Day we close at six right exactly. and that might not be posted anywhere but like if the first time someone asks that question then you can replace that part on on your Google business description that says Labor Day may affect these hours to it's going to be six o'clock yeah and yeah. and the amount of just like the amount that that you know, Google fulfilling their um, their mission of of organizing the world's information uh, can be accomplished in that way. There are just like all of these side benefits that we get. I, it becomes this structured. It, it goes into their their knowledge base, and we can you know connect that with other services. And but I think just again that the the level at which it performed was really impressive yeah well as again we talked about earlier they made the idea of predictions cheap you know they've made the technology so that it's potentially now accessible how do we want to think about using it and yeah right yeah and that's been really interesting to listen to in the last year the change to all the discussions about uh edge computing right about how can we make this so that your phone can host something that's small enough that can still like learn and, and effectively represent the, the ongoing modeling process. Yeah. I, that, yeah. That whole world is completely fascinating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, that's something that I can read about and I can talk a little bit about, but absolutely. When, whenever someone asks me questions that go much deeper, I'm like, well, I'm not really a hardware guy, I'm not yeah. really a software guy either. So like that, that memory allocation optimization is that's, that's definitely where I'm out of my depth. Yeah, well, and I think that that's again an important part to recognize to say, look, I I get this is important. I need to go talk to an expert who can help me walk through the details or at least provide that insight. Uh, you know, right. to where, where are the pitfalls and what's the hype versus what's the reality with that with that aspect too. So, uh, you know, kind of basing it on kind of where Google Duplex is now, sort of as the short term, you know, future. What do you see as how AI will shape kind of the long the long term future, say like ten years out, and then also step back maybe to like a medium future of five years. Where do you, where do you see yeah. us? So I I see uh, I I spend most of my time thinking about this in the term in terms of healthcare. Yeah. And the biggest thing that I see is, especially over ten years, I think we're getting pretty close. Is the not the elimination, but the 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 electronic health record is going to move completely into the background. Yeah. And the reason is that. The way that a perfect healthcare encounter with a doctor in a doctor's office should go is the patient comes in and the doctor is aware of everything that's their their history and what they're um, complaining about, what they're coming in for. And then 
the doctor asks questions to understand like better details of the symptoms and then based on the responses uh using clinical judgment based on all the available medical knowledge the provider will uh t- suggest tests or or do other kinds of of exams um take labs and then based on that will make a diagnosis and a, suggest a course of treatment and so all of that can ai can help with each of those pieces so if you can replace the doctor staring at the computer and typing things in mm-hmm. with the doctor just sitting right next to the patient having a conversation you know we've got like uh, I look a lot at Microsoft's cognitive services that they offer through Azure yeah and so they have uh, voice detection in like conversational voice detection uh, I haven't tested it yet but the idea is that you should be able to say like this is we know this doctor because they work here. And so this is where this doctor is talking. This is where someone else is talking. And so, you know, and then as things are, as things are brought up, you should be able to process them and say, Hey, this is, this is what um, we're thinking might might be the most relevant questions because there's a suspicion of this based on what they're, what they're describing. And it would give the, the physician in real time, right. They could just be like, Oh, uh, I'm not going to do this test. Yeah, we'll do this and this, and I'm going to ask about this, mm-hmm. and and all of that work. Then the the health record is essentially invisible to them, and it's just this this augmented conversation that they're having, and to whoever can get that piece right, and specifically whoever can say, I can put this on top of any health record. Uh, you know, because the largest health systems, I'm, I'm in a conference right now uh, with with health systems that are that are like the hundred largest in the country, mm-hmm. and HCA has hundreds of hospitals, for example, and they have just like given up on having a single uh, a single database system for their health records. It's just not worth it, and so. Instead, if if you can semantically sit on top of of anything based on these common data standards and do that work of what can I do to get the transactions that are needed into that health record so I can properly bill, regardless of what you know regulatory environment we live in for billing. Yeah. Um, and then be able to say, uh, you know, these things. This is like what the core of that that clinical interaction is and how can we support that that's going to undo a lot of the damage that's been done because in some ways the introduction of the electronic health record has been uh it's been great for a few things like making sure that people aren't given medications they're allergic to Mm -hmm. but in terms of the physician workload and experience and in terms of the patient feeling like people are listening to them and are interacting with them and that like that care experience it's been it's been bad overall yeah i think and it's, so yeah go ahead oh no i was gonna say i think it's decreased the experience from both sides uh i heard one, a provider describe it in a very kind of 
uh, forthright way where he, he said, look, before the EMR, electronic medical record, right? He goes, I would go in, it would be me and the patients. There was two of us in the room. And he says, now there's three of us in the room. There's me, the EMR, and the patient. And I'm not giving all of my attention to the patient. I'm spending more time with the EMR than I am the patient. And I've turned into a data entry person. And so I exactly. think that's the idea I really, I really like. And I think that, you know, many of us hopefully are thinking about this in terms of healthcare of the idea of melting away that computer screen inside the, you know, office visit room, exam room, wherever currently there's a computer screen that's interrupting that, you know, one-on-one eye contact with a provider and patient uh, and making it sort of that seamless transition where, you know, even stuff, even work done ahead of time, you know, say with like the Google duplex where you get a phone call the day before, Hey, how's it going? We hear you're coming in tomorrow. Can we just talk about what you want to talk about? You know, or what, what's the main issue and then kind of prep it through and then have that feed. So all of a sudden providers spending, you know, 30 seconds to a minute outside the exam room door saying, Oh yes, I remember this patient. Uh, it kind of refreshes their memory, brings up the most important things this is what they like to talk about. And then they step in the room kind of when they go on stage, they're the most prepared as possible. And, you know, all of the, the cheaper sensors that are coming out that are super cheap now are getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, you know, microphones and video and all that kind of stuff will be sort of just in the background. And the another way I heard described was um, from an inpatient setting, this is a hospital setting, right? And the person said, you know, what I'm excited about in the future is I'll have the best doctors in the world taking care of me and also the best artificial intelligence in the world taking care of me too. Right. Now, outside of healthcare, I, 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 I don't spend as much time thinking about this. I do worry, you know, the, the general concern is that the best AI minds of our age and the best programmers of our age are trying to get people to click on ads. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think that we will see a lot of that kind of targeting improving where, and, and specifically understanding, you know, using, being, being able to use people's, um, psychological triggers in ways that are that are useful for advertising which i think is not hugely positive for society but uh i think that what we're going to see is that kind of technology once it's developed there spin off and and be used elsewhere so we're going to get kind of the second or third yeah, the wave after that yeah the secondary adoption yep Right. Yeah. So speaking of adoption, so what do you think are some of the greatest barriers to adoption in the artificial intelligence world? Uh, you know, it's been, it's been very interesting to hear what others have to stay in this comment and this topic, but you know, what do you see as the biggest barriers? Yeah. So in healthcare, there are a few. One is that the systems that we build aren't, well, so I heard once someone describe it as like the fact that we talk about interoperability about whether systems are interoperable enough shows how bad the problem is mm -hmm. because we don't ask if like when we go to the best buy we're like oh yeah the samsung phone can i call iphone patients on this or iphone customers like that's ridiculous <laughs> yeah yeah it's a phone number right you just you just call them and so i think that uh that that's one issue is that because and to some extent it's going to get worse as what I was talking about with with health health records moving more and more into the background, there's going to be more and more, less and less incentive for them to support an open environment. And I think that there's going to be um, I think things might get a little bit nasty there. But I think the other thing is that so much of healthcare is determined by physician practice, and doctors very much. Um, acquire like a style and a temperament and a way of thinking in medical school and their residency. 
And so it can mm-hmm. be very slow to change those things. So for example, when we're talking about one of the things we've learned is we're talking about the way that our like the predictions that we're getting out of our, our machine learning models. And we've learned that there are specific ways that doctors are taught to assess evidence. And if you don't present what you're doing to them in those terms, then it's gonna be very you're gonna have a lot of difficulty getting buy-in and adoption. Yeah, so the resistance the more is you there. can say like this isn't this is the odds ratio for this, right? Or like this is like an odds ratio, let me explain how that works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then you're gonna be much more successful. So I think that those are some of the biggest barriers. I think the other thing is that uh, that I like to to point out to people when when we look at companies that are successful with technology adoption, and sometimes this is just this isn't even AI, but when we people are like, well, how come Twitter's figured this out? And we can't. And and so like there's the obvious answer of like, well, they're spending a lot of, a lot of money on this. Yeah. But then there's the other answer is that Twitter's whole world is what people type into their system. That is the truth. Correct. Right. And like when you're driving, it's not that much different because if you have like an omnidirectional camera and you can see in all directions, what you're seeing is the truth that's that's relevant for you driving. Yeah. But in healthcare, we we like cut people open and take things out of them and put things into them. And that's the truth. And then like the systems that we enter that data into that are were built for specific purposes like billing are an abstraction away from that truth. And we're trying to advise people about what to do in the real world based on that level of abstraction. And so that it's fundamentally a different problem. And, and the easier problems, the ones where what you can't what you perceive is essentially the meaningful reality are the ones where we've seen the most progress to date the more concrete challenges i think well i i mean the concreteness is a little bit um i think a little bit misleading right because like twitter is an example where the data is completely digital Mm -hmm. and and make-believe right and driving is a very concrete task but it can be like essentially completely rendered by by uh and by a sequence of images yes the, the task can be yeah automated think, that way yeah and i think yeah i maybe i'm not describing i'm not saying concrete clearly um but yeah I, the the level of complexity in healthcare and the idea of abstraction it really does drive it to be a much more difficult set of problems to solve than i i think the example of twitter for sure uh which which is why you know, we, we want to try and push the envelope as much as possible. Then re, in the end, realize that it's it's still extremely challenging. I mean, imagine if Facebook was saying, but like, but are these people really friends? <laughs> like if they were worried about that, they wouldn't get anywhere, right? They, they, we'd all realize that it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I actually don't know this person's grandma. I don't think we're, whereas now it's, yeah, sure. We can share pictures. Uh, so... I think, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I think I'm sensing from you, you have a bit of an optimistic view of the future. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But what do you think will be some of the, the, the benefits to society that people are not perceiving that AI will be able to help with? That's a wonderful question. I think that I don't have anything new to say beyond people you know the general people are like oh this is going to free mankind from from drudgery or whatever like i think that there's a lot 
there's a lot in there to unpack. I think that that what I've seen is that people need to have a couple of things to be to have a meaningful life, right? And so one of them is there's this like level of uh, material well-being, and there is this sense that their that their life has that their life has meaning that they're contributing to something that matters. Yeah. And so, to the extent that um, people can take the gains in human time from artificial intelligence and turn it into uh, consuming or, or producing things that, that are that are meaningful and that, that make them feel good about their place in society, I think we'll know that we're doing it right. To the extent that, you know, we're taking the time that we're afforded um, to watch YouTube videos that are like ever more carefully crafted for us by mm-hmm. algorithms that then cause people to record like strange videos because an algorithm said that it would be popular enough so that people would get watch it enough so they could earn seven dollars and fifty cents on it. Yeah, like that that becomes that quickly spirals into a terrifying dystopia. Yes. So I think a lot of it really comes to like how we're willing to change to um as as both as individuals and as society to address the change in our in our technological reality yeah grow together exactly and and specifically that that not to be not to allow ourselves to be distracted more and more yeah be more human I think that's be more human. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to say. And then it's, you know, I, I've been working on putting my phone down when I'm standing in line and just looking at people and smiling and sometimes it goes well. And sometimes people don't want to talk to me at all because <laughs> I'm the guy yeah, I mean, not, not looking yeah. at my phone. <laughs> How human was I today? I don't know. I'd maybe give myself a six out of 10. Yeah, yeah. And that could be maybe the feedback and the I'll say, Hey, be more human. Here's a, here's an example of how you can do that. Oh, pretty, pretty incredible stuff. So, uh, Justin, thank you so much. Where, um, where can we learn more about your work? Oh gosh, check me out on LinkedIn. I guess is probably your best bet. And then, drop me an email. I'm happy to talk to you about about uh, anything that I'm doing and 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 what uh, how it might relate to other industries and and what the future might hold. Cool, cool. Thank you so much, Justin. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, wow. There's a number of things I'd like to put a spotlight on for my conversation with Tristan. One is the idea of making predictions very, very cheap and how we have to think about solving problems in different ways. Also, it's our responsibility as data scientists and AI community to present information to healthcare providers and others, the end users, in ways that they understand culturally and to really be good translators. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to continue this conversation, you can connect with me on justinsmithphd.com.